This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. All right, hey everybody, and welcome back. So this is going to be the second in a two-part on-the-road working with clients on-site diary between me and my good buddy here, Nick Steiner, on how we work with clients on different projects. So the last episode was going out to read the landscape, gather essential information, and help to establish a little bit of a concept map that can guide the implementation and the development of a hydrological restoration design for clients in the south of, of Portugal, where we are now. And we are... We didn't actually manage to do a daily recap of all of the steps, partly because we were just pretty tired by the end. But we are now driving back to Lisbon, where tomorrow we're going to be flying to our respective homes. And so we're going to do now a pretty in-depth recap of the previous job that we're just leaving now, which was implementing a hydrological restoration design on this site. So before we get too deep into the technical work, Nick, why don't you tell me a bit about the, the context of what we're working in and how you've been involved with this project up until now. Yeah, it's a really exciting and also, well, I would say, important project because the area we were working in, it completely burned down last August, so around half a year ago. And it's not the first time that happened. So the owners, they bought it, I think, around 25 years ago. And in that time, it had already burned down twice. So really devastating and this is also what pushed them to see like okay we need to change something about the landscape we need to make sure that we get the hydration right that we build more of a fire protection than than what they had now um, and so they they reached out to a good friend uh, Edu a good friend of mine we're, we're doing a lot of teaching together and all that and so they reached out and asked him and yeah in our little uh, duo with, with Edu I'm yeah, pretty much the water guy. So he reached out and was like, "Hey, can you can you help me with uh, with that project?" And so of course I said yes. And it's a larger project of around 40 hectares, but the part we looked at more closely are around 14 hectares. So it's shared. Some parts there are owned communally, and some parts are owned by the individual owners of of that part. And so they reached out, and we focused initially on the part of two of the owners there so a really nice couple um, was really great and so the first step that we had in the design was me from a distance kind of analyzing a bit of topographic data getting a bit of an idea of okay what's the general landform how does that look and then coming up with some very rough very broad ideas of what kind of features might work in that landscape but of course like it's that's never how it's how it's going to be but it's just to show them a little bit like, hey, these are kind of features we could do, but it all depends on, on a site visit. Um, and then a while ago, I think oh, not that long, a month ago, I was first on site um, to really get an idea of how the landscape looked. And then we looked through the landscape and we saw, okay, where does this overlap with what the concept map shows and where, where do we have to adjust? And so there we decided because we, we didn't have a lot of time. So we thought, okay, how can we make the best use of, of us and the machine hours? So one major feature there is the, the house that they have. It's on the ridge, really beautiful view in the distance. You can even see the ocean. But unfortunately, the two valleys, they act like fire um, corridors. So there, the fires just come up there with a lot of force. 
Uh, and so the main thing for us was, okay, in this valley and the ridge, how can we really hydrate that? How, we can, how can we bring more water? And we also noticed there's a lot of issues with the roads on site. Um, they were heavily eroded. So we thought, okay, can we combine these two? And that was the first step last time. So we took the erosion. Uh, we built a little bit of a rolling ditch. So you can kind of imagine it, not like a speed bump, but it's more like um, kind of diagonally across the road. It, it's a little bit of a depression. So it goes down a bit and then up a bit. So you can still drive over it pretty quickly without any issues but water just goes in there and from there we put it into a system of three little terraces that bring the water onto the ridge where we then spilled it with the intention of picking that water up for other features in the future. Um, so that was kind of the the initial work we did and um, how we prepared it last time and so this time we came back on site and I think that's a great point to, to give it over to you. So what were your first impressions when you saw the site and how did you read the landscape there? Yeah, it was really interesting for me to arrive there, partly with the descriptions and the preamble that you had given me before arriving, talking about your history with the place, the people there and, you know, the, the natural disaster that had gone through. And I'm also new to this portion of Portugal, although the the climate and the landform and stuff is not really foreign to me. There's a lot of analogous places that I've seen and worked in in other parts of the Iberian Peninsula. But seeing some of the, I mean, genuine challenges of the site that we had to work on. So some of the initial ideas that we walked around with, with the other guys who worked on our team, just I don't know, for some reason didn't sit well with me right in the beginning. It seemed like we were trying to force some things just because we had access to, to bigger machinery and could do more than we might have by hand. And some of the slopes down those valleys just were really steep and trying to put a water body in there seemed like a lot of work for minimal water storage and definitely toying with the edge of the safety that them that I would be comfortable with and so I was really glad that everybody was patient and not in a hurry to really come up with a plan for what would be the best use of our time where would be the best sighting of the different features that we had in mind and a lot of great ideas from different sources of expertise and experience from each of the people that we worked with so with you Edu we also had another guy Dave who was our machinery operator for most of the time, and uh, Bruno, who also works closely in the gardens and in permaculture design in that region, who also did a little bit of machinery operating as well. And they were able to give us a lot of background information that can be hard to get otherwise because they've been living and working in that area for a couple of years now. Um, so all of that really helped us to set in the first day some good expectations and some focus as to where we wanted to put our energies and where some of the work that you know we would later kind of dig test slices and do some more investigation to figure out the feasibility for would fit into the larger goals of helping to mitigate and reduce the fire risk of that area. And I also want to say for those of you who are maybe struggling to visualize or conceptualize some of the things that we're talking about because of the jargon that we're using and the terminology for the different features or the technical aspects that we're doing, don't feel bad. Uh, some of this is, is difficult for even me to visualize when it's being communicated, you know, just in words. And for that reason, we've been publishing a lot of pictures and videos about what we've done on our social media accounts. Uh, Nick at Permanic uh, Permaculture and myself, of course, at Regenerative Skills on Instagram. And uh, increasingly, I'm going to be putting kind of collections and albums of the work on our Discord server as well. So if you want to see the visuals that go along with this, I would really recommend that you check those out for, for better understanding of the things that we're talking about. So Nick, why don't you tell us how we got started on the first day after going around with everybody and coming up with a plan? Yeah, so we had kind of two points that were really interesting for us. So it's these two valleys where in between them we have the ridge with the main house and these valleys then flow kind of into a, into a main valley. And 
at that lower point where these two valleys flow together, there's this absolute prime spot for a dam that can really hold quite a bit of water. So that could be a really great pond location. Um, and so we thought, okay, this spot is definitely the most interesting that we would love to get active with. But we only have a very small, I think it was 1.5 ton um, excavator. So for those of you who don't know the tons of those, it's basically the really the smallest kind of excavator that, um, that you can have. So they're, they're small, they can definitely get work done, but they're not the big machine. So that was one of the things that we quickly realized with the three days that we had. It's gonna be impossible to do any proper work in that spot um, and we want to reserve it for, for a later one. And it also makes a lot of sense because in those two valleys that are above it, there are still quite a few issues with erosion, a lot of kind of unchecked water flow in one of them. So yeah, we definitely want to get into, into that valley because in the, in the one, in the bigger valley there, erosion gullies over a meter uh, deep. So it makes a lot of sense to see, okay, what can we do above that? To already slow the water down to get as much of it in the ground as we can and then at a later stage pick that water back up and bring it into this main feature and so we walk the different ones and, and as you just said like one of them one of the valleys it's just too steep it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to work at the point that that would make sense just looking at the map and so we walked up the other valley and we found this spot kind of closer to the house it's really nice just the I think it might even be more or less the key point. Um, so it's a really great point in that valley. And we saw, hey, this could be a great point to start. And we can build not so much a, a dam that will hold water throughout the year, but mainly with the idea of infiltrating as much as possible higher up in the landscape. And then the way we build it, depending on what we find in the soil, we see how long it holds water, but we definitely take speed out of it. We definitely infiltrate it into the soil and it will be of great benefit for the future of the design. So that's kind of the point we got to. We said, okay, great, tomorrow morning, let's start here. This is a very promising site. Um, yeah, that was a really exciting moment. How, how was that for you? Yeah. I it was nice to find something that didn't feel forced. Like I said earlier, some of the other sites that we were looking at, yeah, we could have done something there, but it didn't seem like an effective use of either the machinery or the manpower that we had access to. And so when we settled on that being our first priority site, it just, it felt a lot better. That gut check that we often refer to as like, you know, the intuition in it finally sat really well with me and I think did so with the rest of the team as well. And from there, we started to actually test the assumption and go in with a couple of test slices. And well, it was a little tricky because in so many of the other places that you had worked previously, some of the features that you mentioned that you installed by hand at your first visit, exposed a lot of very heavy clay. And that's a great sign for anybody who has been following on the previous episodes. It's the ideal material for holding water. Uh, it has very slow infiltration rate, has decent impermeability. And we were expecting to find the same thing in the site that we had decided on to start working in. But as soon as we started to dig that test slice, we were going deeper and deeper. And we got to a point of about, I would say almost a meter and we hadn't hit any decent clay. It was pretty crumbly material, actually fairly decent topsoil, but I was really surprised because we had all this heavy clay on the ridges and almost none in the valley, which is quite uh, counterintuitive to what we're used to finding. Many times with clay being more water soluble than bigger aggregate, it will dissolve and be carried away quite quickly in any kind of rain event and often collect and accumulate in the valleys though this example is exactly why we test for it because it's a generalization and not a hard rule and so we did start to hit some heavy clay beyond about a meter but given the shape of the land and how big we wanted to make the feature it didn't seem like a good idea to move all of that topsoil material out of the way just so that we could get to a little bit of clay at the bottom in hopes of having enough material to build the key of the dam and make it more solid and impermeable in the center 
in hopes of holding water for longer in the landscape. And so we adjusted our expectations a little bit. We realized that we are going to, even with our best attempts of compacting that material, probably the best we're going to be able to do is hold it back and infiltrate a whole lot, which is certainly worth doing, but is not a pond. And so with that, we kind of moved forward. And tell me a little bit about the workflow for you, about how things progressed. First of all, with clearing out that space, what was the order of operations that not only we like to do as a general uh, way of working, but played out with the different people that we worked with? Yeah, it was um, really great in this case because Dave, our machine operator, he um, is not just a machine operator for one uh, thing. He also lives on the land, uh, which is really great for his experience. Um, he also has experience building quite a few dams, which is also great. And then the most important two aspects, he has also really good training in, in permaculture. And he was also with the two of us in the Water Stories course that basically kickstarted the two of us into going really, really into, into this whole water work um, that we're doing now and building these features so it's amazing when you have an operator where you don't really need to explain the kind of concept of features you just say what kind of feature you're thinking and they they know what you mean um, so that was that was great to start with and so the first step and it should always be the first step doesn't really matter which which kind of project is separating the topsoil so in these areas you generally don't have a very deep topsoil and later on for plants to establish the topsoil it has the kind of um, nutrients in it you know from the plant material a lot of things just build up over years so that soil is just much better for things to grow in um, than just you know putting subsoil which yeah might be more or less dead um, so that's why we separated that first and then we started scratching looking in the area and seeing a bit okay what kind of materials do we have below and the next part was looking at the kind of spot where I wanted to put uh, the key of the dam. So the key is kind of the center of a dam. And generally, that is the part where you would have the heaviest or the, yeah, the richest kind of clay content. And the more you compress it, the deeper you make it and the better you key it. So you anchor it into the side and the bottom, the better will be the impermeability. And so as we started digging down and looking what kind of material we have, we realized, okay, that's just not the kind of clay we need, as you just mentioned. So we thought, okay, what can we do? Um, and then one option would be we really dig down. We spend a lot of time digging down into that clay layer that we found. But then to build a key, because you can't just have it under the soil, you also need it to go up because it needs to hold water in that body we would need a lot of that clay. And where could we get it? Well, we would need to get it from other locations. And sometimes at projects, when you have a bigger machine that has a lot of reach, or you have some trucks and other machines to bring material from A to B, it can be quite feasible to say, okay, we get the clay somewhere else. But at this project with this small machine with really not a lot of reach, it would have meant a ton of extra work. And because of the test slides, we knew, okay, this is never gonna hold water like a really proper you know insulated and compacted dam so we said hey let's not waste you know an extra two days on that and then still not have a great result but rather let's say okay this one will really act more as an infiltration basin it will definitely fill it will hold for some time um, and let's use our resources in a smart way so what we decided for instead was a bit of a hybrid um, so we dug a bit down so we dug around half a meter on an angle into the potential key so that way the excavator could drive on it a lot it could compact it a lot and then he was kind of with his arm reaching for different spots and seeing the spots that had a little bit more clay so he would put them into the spot of the key then kind of add a little layer there and then drive on top of it to to compact it so that was the kind of strategy we had then it's kind of like always look where we can find better clay, add it into the spot of the key, and then just drive over it uh, kind of tirelessly. And so that was then pretty much his job. So he was just going back and forth, finding a bit of a layer, putting it on top, compacting it. 
And for those of you who haven't worked with soil a lot, sometimes it looks like you have a lot of material, but once you have a 1.5 ton machine driving over it, that stuff compacts and disappears. So uh, that was definitely a long process. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's what you have to do and you need to see what the landscape allows and the kind of machinery you have. So that took uh, quite some time. How was that uh, experience for you or what did you notice in, in those steps? Yeah, so it's worth keeping in mind that my previous experience in building features like this was with a different company that has different practices and ways of doing this. In fact, the last time I was out on site, we didn't use an excavator at all. We just used a bulldozer and that has a lot less, uh, let's say, nuance. <laughs> a bulldozer can do one thing and pretty much one thing only, and that is push material around. Now, we are still able to shape and build up the the walls of a dam and the necessary features including cutting out uh, terraces and whatnot but it doesn't allow for the kind of nimble moving that an excavator does and so it was really interesting for me to work with a different machine to see its capabilities and to watch its workflow there's advantages and disadvantages to both of them um, but when you're trying to do high quality and you know, um, how would you even put it? Like safe and, and nuanced work that really fits within a landscape. You have a lot more options and ability to, to adapt with an excavator. So it was really cool to see. That being said, we were still in a very small and tight spot. And as nimble as that machine is, it's hard for it to turn really quickly, at least within kind of the bowl shape that was constantly being built by the advancement of this feature and so a lot of what I learned from just paying attention to the operator and the way that he maneuvered around the space gave me a better idea about how I would do this in the future when I'm the machinery operator myself um, yeah I mean look even though we say that it's a small machine and it just can't move earth the way bigger tonnage machines can do we got almost all of the heavy work done and the shaping of this feature done in the first day. And the second day was spent much more refining what was already built, um, moving some material around and shaping the spillway, shaping some of the catchment on top. But Nick, maybe you can take us through that sequence of events yourself. Yeah, so one thing that was really critical or that, that is always critical is seeing or kind of you need to find a balance between water holding capacity and safety. So to make that a bit clearer, if you build any kind of feature with the dam wall, you would get the most amount of water holding capacity if the water would just go all the way to the top of the wall. You know, so you would just have it level. You probably all know what an infinity pool looks like. So that kind of design would be kind of the best for water holding capacity. The issue with that is it's extremely unsafe because at those top layers or those top centimeters, you know, you only need a little bit of a crack for water to flow through and it's gonna cut through your whole damn wall like butter. And so that's the ultimate thing we want to avoid is any water getting anywhere near that damn wall and cutting through it. Um, and so what you do to prevent that is you build the spillway. So it's kind of the overflow. It's a level that when the water reaches that level, it has a point to go around the dam wall and to exit into the area below. And you need to kind of decide at which height you put that. Uh, and so there are different, um, let's say, philosophies of, of how you do that. And so generally for us, you know, if you want to build really safely a meter of difference between the maximum water height and the top of the dam wall is a really safe way to go with so this part called the freeboard um, quite often 75 centimeters is also like still still fine it's also good the better you can compact the top of the dam wall the more kind of wiggle room you have but those are just margins that are good for proper like big big dams um, so with us in this tiny spot you know it's really not not a big one we definitely don't need that much but both of us we really like to be on the safe side we prefer to have a feature that holds less water but is perfectly safe also in crazy 500 year rain events 
And so that was a bit of the tough decision we had to make because we also didn't have that much material. It's something you might also underestimate in a spot to build the wall and you can't just build a wall like a brick wall you know that has uh, just steep or kind of vertical uh, vertical walls you need to put it on an angle so on the inside it's usually three to one so for every meter that you uh, that you go up you have three meters going to the side so that's kind of on the inside and on the outside two to one is uh, sometimes enough so that material needs to come somewhere when you dig in a valley um, that means that with every shovel you take out, it gets steeper. So that's a bit of an issue and you need to see, okay, how much material can we dig out to still be safe, to not have really steep hills that will just cut erosion channels into it. So that was a lot of back and forth where we had to see, okay, what do we feel comfortable with? And there, yeah, I think we couldn't be more grateful of being friends and in close connection with uh, our mentor, Zach Weiss. Because there, you know, I just sent him a message, I explained the project to him, we discussed it a bit, and then we found a, found a good solution um, that's, yeah, somewhere in between. We made the spillway a little bit bigger, so initially we had planned around a meter of spillway width. We said, hey, let's really be on the safe side, made around 1.5 meters. Good thing is, by cutting the spillway uh, into the hillside, we got more material, so we could even raise it further. And I think now in the end, we ended up with around 80 centimeters of, um, of freeboard, uh, which is really great. But those are the kind of things you might underestimate when just going into a project. On a map, you can just draw a damn wall. In the, in the real world, you need to build it and that material needs to come somewhere. And there's all these factors of how do you move it? Uh, how high can you build it? So that was really, really interesting, this process of seeing what's possible and how can we build in um, enough safety margin. And I mean, the, the topic of safety for us is probably one of the biggest. Um, it's also something we do with inflow and outflow, the whole topic of rock armoring. So why don't you share a bit more about the topic of rocks, why we work with rocks and your general experience with how we got to a good uh, decision about the spillway height? Yeah, so that was a really good description of the spillway, how it functions. And I guess I'll talk now about how we shaped ours. So that first consideration that you mentioned, of, first of all, you never put a spillway in the dam that you can, or the wall that you constructed. Uh, that's always going to be softer, less compact material than going into grade, which is undisturbed earth. And so we're always looking for a site either conducive to where we want to put the water next, whether it's putting it back inside of a valley, connecting it with another feature like a terrace, or even a set of other ponds uh, either below or horizontal to it and safely cutting that to the right dimension in grade, in undisturbed material. Uh, this already greatly minimizes the risk of having it erode out even under uh, you know heavy storm conditions and in our case what we did is we made this the lowest part of the spillway um, or no, I guess the area where it's actually going to overflow from a good 10 meters or so from the dam itself. So we actually shot it out along the, the grade of the ridge, a very good safe distance away from the dam feature itself. And we set the grade back in towards the dam so that as it starts to exit the feature that we've been building, it still has a good way to go before it starts to pour into unworked terrain. This was for two reasons. One, the safety aspect that we just mentioned and the, the distance that it gives us so that there's no chance that water can actually back cut and even start to erode away the... Oh, you have an extra reason. Yes. <laughs> okay, hang on. I'll, I'll, let me do the two and then you'll add the one that I overlooked. Um, and. So this prevents any water from being able to get back into the valley close enough to the base of the dam wall so that it could erode or undercut what we've been doing. And it also extends the catchment slightly because the water was coming in, uh, basically consider this little bowl shape that we had created, we were missing a lot of the water that would have gone further away. Um, and basically we just got to direct it back in. So we increased the catchment that that was flowing into our feature. 
did you say there was one more, one that I missed? No, that was the one. Like basically, by by slightly reshaping this, and normally you would have your spillway either perfectly level or kind of tilted towards the exit, and by having it the other way around, exactly, we increased the water holding capacity of the feature plus and then the one thing you just mentioned it at the end so i shouldn't have said anything but yeah we basically captured a lot more of the valley above that otherwise would have just gone past the feature so that way you know we have increased safety um, we also have increased water holding capacity plus we have bigger catchments so three great features just by shaping it slightly differently than you would normally and Part of the reason why we made this choice is because this land has been worked previously. There was a kind of old and no longer functioning access road that was very close to our feature. And though it was shedding water off of it and was on a grade that would definitely still cause for erosion, I would say maybe about 15 degrees if I'm just to, to eyeball it. Uh, it did create a, sort of a, a mass and a contour in the side of the hill that helped us to make that decision, right? It was moving water away from where the feature that we were installing was. And so just by extending the spillway out that much further, we were able to recapture it and redirect it in. Now, at the end where the highest point of the spillway was, this is where we do rock armoring. And we did it in two main features, both in the inflow, because it was on a grade that was more than sufficient to allow for erosion. And what often happens is people don't look at the backside of dams or ponds or infiltration basins or whatever. And because you've dug out so much material there, you've created a real um, desnivel pendiente. I gotta think in English again. <laughs> basically a slant on the landscape that can really cause some back erosion and can help to fill the feature with sediment much faster which is obviously going to reduce its capacity to hold water over time and in order to prevent that we armored that area and even kind of created a, a little what we call a Sunni bowl it's a rock armored bowl in in the inflow from the valley that would prevent erosion not only from the rock that we put in there but when it's raining significantly that bowl will fill up and the water will be flowing into standing water which really helps to take the kinetic energy out of it and prevent any sedimentation or erosion in that area now we did the same thing on the exit for the dam on the highest point of the spillway like i mentioned earlier and you know it takes some time this is where a lot of the manual work that the machinery itself is not going to do for you came in and with our teams we went and scoured the landscape for any rock that we could find uh, we brought it as far as we could in the back of a pickup truck we unloaded it into wheelbarrows and hand carried it the rest of the way and just like Nick was saying a second ago you think you have enough earth to build up the damn wall or whatever other feature you're doing until you start to compress it and compact it and dig in there you realize that you are since often tough to get what's really necessary to meet grade well even more so when it comes to gathering rocks the amount of rocks that you need to adequately armor a feature like this like we could have easily gotten i would say quadruple the amount and used all of it but we really got to a point where it was unfeasible the stuff that we were pulling off of the hillsides was crumbly and very unstable rock so we got the best stuff that we could and put it in the most important features and even built out a little bit more than would probably be strictly necessary. Again, really focusing on the safety here. Even though we weren't able to make it as, uh, let's say, impermeable with the amount of clay that we would have liked to work with, we definitely did not skimp on the safety features. Making sure that the tolerances on the angle of the dam wall, the overbuilding of the spillway so that even in a very heavy event would be more than adequate to prevent any kind of erosion or undercutting of the feature and then armoring everything that we could possibly get rock into to further uh, strengthen and and prevent anything from washing out even in a big event all right so we've talked a lot about that main feature the main dam and that valley that we've been building for the first day but 
there were some other things that we were keeping an eye on and planning out as the machinery was doing its work before we could actually go in and do our portion by hand by refining some of the features with hand tools and building the rock armoring in the features that I just mentioned. So Nick, why don't you tell me about the other feature on the valley next to it over the ridge that we were scoping out in the meantime and figuring out how to connect. Yeah, so our initial plan was to build another kind of pond at the bottom of the other valley. But as we said at the beginning, uh, that's just too steep and it wouldn't be worth it because as we just mentioned, you need all these materials to build the wall. And if we scratch more into that valley, we're gonna have such steep walls, just not worth it. So we found another spot above it where we thought, hey, lots of clay in that area, we might be able to build a pond there. But one thing we realized is that just with the amount of time we have available, with the machine size we have, and most importantly with the kind of quality level that we like to build at, it's not going to be possible to build these two um, ponds or two infiltration basins in the time we have there. So we thought, okay, what else can we do with the overall objective of hydrating the land there and bringing water to the ridge? Um, so one plan we had is connecting the terrace that we had built there in December, so around a month ago, we had the idea how can we get the water that that terrace already gets from the road and how can we bring it all the way around uh, the ridge and into the feature that we built there, so into this infiltration basin that we just described um, how we were building it. So that was one plan that we had and so we spent quite a bit of time with the laser, um, maybe worth mentioning at this point, a laser level, it's ultimately essential for these projects just to get an idea um, where things are. And for those of you who are not familiar, we're basically working with a rotating laser. So you can kind of imagine a, yeah, just a regular tripod and then it has this uh, little box on top. And in there is a laser that just spins on one horizontal kind of plane. So that way, within a few hundred meters, depending on the quality of the laser, sometimes also only 50 meters, but yeah, you basically get one line in the landscape and so you can have a receiver and with that you always know every point on that uh, has the same height which is super handy for all these features and seeing how to build them. Um, so with that we also wanted to build this terrace and the terrace we didn't want to build it level so if you build a level terrace you know water would just sit in it it would just um, yeah not really do much but by having the terrace with the one percent um, kind of tilt or leaning 1% in one direction, water will still accumulate on the terrace but then slowly start moving into the direction of that 1%. And that way you can move water from one valley to the next. And that's the kind of feature we wanted to build um, to yeah, bring more water into the feature that we had just built. But yeah, something happened. Um, why don't you go, us, uh, or go with us through why we in the end decided not to do that. Yeah, so there was a couple of reasons that brought us to the decision that we ultimately made, which didn't connect the features at all. Um, part of it is because as we got to the height of the dam wall on the first feature, it stopped being super easy within the gradient tolerances. Like you said, we we're aiming for 1%. You can go as much as 2 before you start running the risk of, of er basically the water eroding the feature that you put in. And it just, it kept feeling a little bit forced. Partly also because of the machine that we were using. We were keep getting the feedback from Dave that that side of the ridge was very steep and perhaps he could do it, but it would take a lot of time and it'd be a little precarious and he didn't want to force it. And this is part of the reason why it was so important for us to have a dialogue with him and with the rest of the team is getting that kind of feedback before we commit to a design really helped us to do something that again was not forced that was within safety and operational procedure that we all felt comfortable with and there's always other options i think this is really important to communicate like just because you could put a dam or uh infiltration pond or you know whatever else uh, swales are extremely popular terraces it's not the only thing that you could do there there's always a couple of options and so we just simply looked at the other options that were available that were more comfortable for us to work with 
And yeah, so we settled on an idea of connecting in with a sediment trap that you had built by hand in the previous visit, having the overflow go into a terrace that was very, very close to level, but slightly cantilevered off by, I would say, about a 0.05% that brought the water out to the ridge and putting it in a, well, we would like to call it a ridge pond, but we didn't get to dig it out quite as much as we would like to. There's still the option to expand it. This is really what we were working on and refining today. And <laughs> this part of the job actually went back and forth a little bit because when you're working at such a delicate grade like that, and as nimble as these excavators are, as they're working, you constantly have to go back and check your work. And well, we figured out a few things as we kept going that required some adaptation and some redoing. So we got a little ahead of ourselves. We started to armor the spillway with the rocks for this feature as well. And then we went back and shot it with the laser and realized that we were not within the angles that we needed to be and that it would fill up too much for the downhill berm that was being built with the material that we had to use. Nick, you want to talk a little bit more about the troubleshooting that came up in this last portion? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of back and forth and it was really <laughs> thanks to the laser again that we caught it early. Um, so quite likely the way we had built it, um, or generally at these projects, you have a bit of a limiting, limiting resource and that's the excavator driver. Because we only had one machine, um, but we had three of us, you know, with our hands available to do action. But quite often the excavator needs to do the heavy lifting and the cutting of lid flows, spillways, all these kind of things before we as humans can move in and, you know, move, move rocks, armor that and all that kind of stuff. So we thought, hey, with this feature, let's be smart. Um, let's establish the level. Let's start cutting a bit of the channel towards the ridge pond. And then we know exactly where we need our spillway. Um, so let the excavator driver cut it in. Then we can already armor it. He can continue his work and we just get more done in the same time. And so when we double check with the laser in the spot where we had set the kind of safety margins to know, okay, we have enough berm. So the berm is the kind of the wall on the lower side um, of this water channel. We have enough safety margin. Great, everything works. But then as we walked along, we realized there, there were a few variations in the berm height um, and in the water height and it was just it didn't feel comfortable to put water there because quite likely it would have worked but maybe in a very heavy rain event water could have found a way through the berm started cutting it and instead of then spilling through the spillway it would have gone at a spot where we don't want it so yeah for us we had the we had kind of two options so on the one side we could make the whole feature um, much deeper and use that material to put it on top or we could say okay we just spend I don't know an hour or something or a bit more on armoring the spillway and making it all kind of pretty and safe and redo all our work so after a bit of back and forth we decided okay let's redo our work because for us safety was the number one concern um, and then also reshape and make the channel a bit deeper and add on top so we we kind of add a safety margin on both ends which you know sometimes it's it's annoying when you think hey we just put this in but in the end we will be so glad uh, when this feature holds in the future and it, and it doesn't break because you yeah you just can't deliver any work that's like that um, yeah so we spent a lot of time on that a lot of cutting a lot of re-measuring with the laser and that's the kind of reality also generally with these features why it's so critical not to have a pretty super fancy um, GPS perfect master plan because then these things happen and you need to change things and so we were really glad that we had a bit of a concept plan but we were able to adapt a lot of back and forth with us at the team um, and so in the end we could get to a level where we said like hey this feature works this feature is safe let's see how it performs and the ridge pond that we wanted to build, we can still expand the channel that we have now at a later stage. So we all got to a point where we're like, hey, we can go home and be happy about this feature. We know it's safe. And that's so much better than holding a bit more water. But yeah, maybe the feature failing. But um, yeah, how, how were those last hours for you? How did you experience that? Well, one of the things that I really liked about this project is we really had a primary objective of putting in one feature 
that would make the clients very pleased and stay within the budget that they had made available for this. And we knew we could probably do a little bit more, but we made sure and put all of our efforts into making the first one very well finished, well armored, very safe, and use the extra time and the extra energy from the team to expand beyond that. And that's exactly how we executed it based on those priorities. And the nice thing about this is the last projects that I've been on, we had a very narrow window and we kind of said, we'll get done as much as we're able to, which meant that we didn't get to put in some of the finishing touches, which I think are essential. And so the last couple of hours we were going around, we were redistributing that topsoil that we had put apart in the beginning. And this is good work to do by hand, at least on the scale of project that we were working on. If you're making massive dams and really big features, you're probably still gonna do this with the machinery. But at our scale, we were mostly doing this with hand tools, with rakes, with uh, hose, with, uh, with shovels. And so getting everything nice and covered once again with topsoil and then going around and reseeding it with grass seed and a small mix of a few other things like peas and lupins to give a little bit of diversity and to make sure that this grows back as soon as possible. We're really fortunate um, that there was decent rains before we arrived. We talked about this in the previous project, so it had rained, or sorry, it had been sunny and dry for already almost a full week before we arrived on this second job. But there was enough moisture in the system that there was humidity in the soil that we were working with, which helps it to compact better and hold its form. And we, doing some of these tests, uh, these touch tests for, for clay content and whatnot, it's really the ideal situation to work in. If it's too dry, it won't compact properly. If it's too saturated, it can get muddy. It can be hard for the machinery to work in. It can be a little demoralizing to traipse around in the mud for a whole bunch of time. And it's also terrible for compaction. So we really had ideal circumstances within the earth to work with. And then by finishing it off with the topsoil, reseeding everything, I think we left this as good as we possibly can. Like you mentioned before, being very confident about the safety measures and the tolerances that we operated within, but also we were able to make it quite beautiful, I think. And I mean, I'm really just excited to see how this looks and how this performs when the first rain comes. And this is part of the reason why we implement projects in stages like this and allow a full season, especially for some of the smaller features to see how they perform, whether they do so as expected, almost inevitably you're going to learn something and observe a few new things that were unanticipated. And because you had already done a bit of small work with hand tools and the sediment traps and some of the terraces that you had put in in, in the last season, we got to learn a lot from how they responded to these previous rains, where some of the low spots were, how much sediment actually gets caught in there, whether there's still areas of erosion or even new erosion because of what we put in, how well things revegetate and regrow back that informed how much energy and how much resources we put into different aspects of just finishing this project in a way that we're confident are going to get reestablished and hopefully turn green again as soon as possible. And I guess for this one that mostly wraps up everything, we have received a lot of questions and ideas of subjects to go into further detail into from the community on the Discord. And that's what our next episode is gonna be about. But one thing I'd like to really reiterate, especially from our side of the appreciation that we feel from getting to work with such an awesome team, people who are great communicators, had great ideas, and we were constantly talking through everything. And for us, just having this other skill set, the experience level from people who live and have worked on the site for a number of years now, as well as some of the harrowing stories, even of people who came by in the evenings who weren't part of our working team, but gave us perspective on you know how the community around is dealing with what has happened from the recent fires, how they're rebuilding, how the general attitude and, and hope uh, remains around the recovery effort of this. And, you know, hopefully the work that we are doing here is going to make it more resilient against natural disasters like this in the future. I mean, we could go on for a little bit about 
some of the other landscape management that is very close to this area. And we also had some time to reflect at the end of the work on our key learning, some of our key takeaways and reflections. And I was able to record Eduardo's reflections before we got here. So I'm gonna splice this in now so you can hear what some of his takeaways were, which were absolutely invaluable and really added to the overall experience. I'm Eduardo Terzidis. I'm a regenerative designer um, offering consultancies and courses both in person and online. Um, I'm a former engineer that then turned into um, a regenerative designer because I wanted to work more on the field instead of just doing research, which is what I was doing. Um, so today I'm busy doing this together with organizing uh, yoga retreats and facilitating other experiences for people to connect to a more authentic way of living, I guess. Um, I live in the area where we, where this, or very close to where this project is being implemented right now. The area has been hit by a huge, massive wildfire that burned around 8,000 hectares uh, last summer. We are right now in January 2024, and the clients own um, cumulatively around, I think, I think it's 40 hectares of land that are split into different properties. So right now we're developing around um, 13 to 15 of these 40 hectares that um, burned completely, obviously, due to the fire. So what we're doing right now is we're implementing strategies to help the land recover from the wildfires, but also um, mitigate the effect of future wildfires, which in this area are just becoming more and more common. In fact, this very land um, has burned completely for the second time um, in around 20 years. So um, what we see around here, the whole property surrounded by uh, eucalyptus monocultures, which are not the only, but one of the main reasons why wildfires spread so fast. And funny enough, the area where this project is being, is being implemented is called Valle d'Agua, which means the Valley of Water. And interestingly enough, people that have lived here for long say that this um, the, the abundance of water in these valleys used to be a problem many, many years ago. And so the design strategies that have been implemented here where um, the, the, let's say the objective of the design strategies was to actually get rid of the excess water that was just flooding valleys and, and making agricultural practices impossible. So the problem is now these um, strategies are still being implemented, but in, in a time where actually we need to hold water into our landscapes. Um, and so um, incoming desertification and um, just underground aquifer depletion and wildfires are some of the <coughs> challenges that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, so some of the things that I've learned is um, this, this is the very first time for me to work on a land that's been hit right after it's been hit by a wildfire. And, and it just, especially in these areas of the world, I, I realize more and more how it always comes back to um, water management and erosion prevention as kind of the foundations of, of any project. And yeah, it just, just the, in a way, the beauty, which is, it's weird to call it a beauty, but the beauty to work on a land just after it's been hit by a wildfire is that it just becomes so clear how water moves and where erosion is happening. And so, Again, it's kind of like working on a black canvas and being able to to stop those those erosion channels to prevent those erosion gullies from becoming deeper and deeper, and um, and it and again this this serves as a foundation. Like nothing else, nothing else can happen. Like you know, agroforestry trees producing food, re-establishing the native um, forest and ecosystems. None of that can happen um, if. Uh, we we don't prevent water and we don't make sure that um, we don't prevent erosion and we don't make sure that water soaks into the ground as a first thing. Uh, as I said, I live in this area and we've we we were lucky enough to have abundant rains this year. And just whenever it rains, you go down into the valleys and they're completely flooded. Like you go to the beach and most beaches receive so much water, so much silty water, which which is. Um, 
uh, an indicator that none of the water is going in the ground. And so in an area of the world where we complain so much about lack of water and certification, when that happens, I'm like, well, well, actually there is water. So we, we just have to make sure that it's, it ends up in the right places instead of just being, so to say, wasted. I would say what something that really excites me about this project is that we well first of all is is working with uh, many different peoples with with different skill sets which allowed us to to put in I think we've put in pretty much almost one of each features one of each thing that is possible to do you know we worked with terraces whales we've made a few zuni balls simple infiltration basin sediment traps uh, a is kind of like a dam to plan for a bigger dam so it's it's just beautiful to see how all of these things can work together and um how um so it's just really nice to see how all of these things can work together and how every place has a a preferred option you know it's not like you you cannot and and we we had a we had a plan we had a master plan a digital master plan but then once you're on site it's like okay we had planned a terrace here but actually we'll go for a swale we had planned to make a pond here but actually we will just do something else because it just makes more sense so for me something that i really realized it's it's just so important to to be on site and and to work with with the features and the people and the machinery that is available on site and um actually it all, almost makes me realize as a designer that i i want to keep the um, let's say digital or on paper design to the bare minimal because we we changed our plans so many times while we were here and and there is just no way that that you can know and that you can get to understand some of the things that we managed to understand while you're designing in in a room or on a laptop or on paper so i think this just just bringing the right that right balance between doing the necessary bare minimum design on paper and just and then just hitting the ground and and dealing with the realities of of what implementing something is yeah i'm just i'm just super excited to be working on something like this because i think it's a it's a great opportunity to show what's possible as i said i live here and Wildfires are just one of the challenges that we're facing and the <clears throat> the the wildfire prevention strategies that the government kind of forces upon landowners are just uh, in some cases funny enough they they just actually increase the risk of wildfires you know so um for me working from the bottom up and implementing these systems and then once the next fire comes being like hey you know, when the last fire came, this is what happened. Then we've implemented these things. And now this property is clearly doing much better than everything around it. So this stuff works, you know. So so just just working with things, implementing things and showing that they work instead of just talking about them. Because the reality is many of these um, strategies that are imposed on landowners are developed in offices by by people that probably don't don't really understand so much of them because they they're not involved they don't have they don't get their hands dirty so um i i'm a big fan of this just just doing things showing that that they work also learning in the meantime because we did learn a lot we made a lot of mistakes um but but just you know testing things because once things are tested and they clearly work then there is no no doubt about what's right or what's wrong so what about you, Nick, and looking back on how things went, what are some of the main learnings that you got from this, things that you would do differently, and things that will inform the next process? I think for me, the the biggest new insights were in material movement. So really, what do you move from where to where? Um, what is possible with which kind of machine? And how much do you need for, for different kind of features? Because there are often these um, points in the landscape, so sometimes we call them kind of pinch points, or we also, um, at a different visit, we came up with the point aquapuncture point. Um, and yeah, so these are the points where the, where the walls of the, of the valley are kind of close together. So with a little bit of earth movement, you could hold larger amounts of water. 
But that was really interesting with this project, knowing that even though this would be ideal, the ideal point, it would mean that you would have to dig into it so much more and then it all gets super kind of steep and it's just such a pain to then regrade it. Um, so that was definitely a big insight saying like, hey, sometimes we can't choose the perfect spot to just make sure we have enough material to work with. Um, I think that for me was the biggest one. Um, and then that also together with the whole safety aspect that we talked about before. So how big can you build it? Um, how much water holding capacity can you have to still have enough material and enough compaction to have a body that, that holds and that is safe? Um, those were really interesting. And then I think also for me it was really interesting to see, especially in this group, because we had um, quite a few of us, you know, we all have different specialties in this world of, of water and earthworks. And that was great. And it kind of encouraged me also in the future to work on projects um, in teams. So it doesn't always need to be a team that large, but at least not being alone with the decision making and having kind of these sessions of brainstorming together and figuring out what is best in this kind of landscape. That was just fantastic. Um, yeah, I think those two things for me were, were really great and interesting. How was it for you? Some of the biggest things that I took away that I... I'm really looking forward to integrating into future projects is just the amount of test slices that we did. Reflecting on finding or not finding the material that we wanted for the main dam project and then realizing as we started to spread out into the side and into the the ridges a little bit more, we found a huge abundance of clay. And that isn't to say that it would have changed the workflow or how we built the dam that we did, but we didn't realize that that material was so close by until we started to work outside of the area that we were immediately in. And quite possibly that could have given us the material to put more of a key in at the base, even if it wasn't sufficient to go all the way up the dam wall. Um, it quite likely would have given us a little bit more option to work with. And so yeah, just a couple more test slices, being a little bit more patient and poking around could have changed uh, the way and the, the material that we had to work with in there. I'm very grateful and appreciative of the patience that everybody who we worked with showed in taking a minute and not just rushing into work, um, reflecting on the options that we all had access to and the ideas and the contributions from people with different viewpoints and experience. I think that can't be overstated, especially when we're all on these learning journeys, always looking to increase uh, our efficacy and the quality of work that we're doing. And of course, it, you know, it requires patience from everybody. And the other thing too is that I have a better idea now of having gone through a full process of doing all the delicate finish work of reshaping a little bit with, with hand tools, of reseeding, of uh, replacing uh, finished or topsoil over everything. Not only about how much effort and time that it takes, but about when in the project and how to manage, uh, you know, where the, the machinery goes, when it's more effective to just do something by hand. Even if it is, you know, more sweat equity put into it, do we really need to bring the the machine back to do this or should we just bust it out i mean all of this stuff just comes with more and more experience and you know everything every time that we do a project like this there's new insights there's new things to reflect on and uh, yeah i think that's what i got from it so real quick before we sign off on this episode if you want to contribute your own questions go ahead and sign up through the link on the Regenerative Skills website, regenerativeskills.com. Right there on the homepage, there is a link for the Discord and you can join for free, of course. And there's also a link in the bio on the Instagram channel for Regenerative Skills as well. So please come. We would love to hear your ideas and your contributions into the community. So Nick, is there anything else you want to tell us before we sign off? Yeah, I think one realization that I didn't talk much about before is just how awesome it is to build all these things that we had previously just kind of learned with smaller project and in theory from, from Zach Weiss and the Water Stories course. Because what I realized during this project is 
there are so many different ways to build water features but the focus in the course was so much on how can you build features that most importantly are safe um, that will hold also in heavy rents and prevent kind of erosion but also ones that look good in the landscape because it would have been so much easier and faster to just build a straight dam wall a tiny little spillway also straight and then just going back down it would have been faster but it just doesn't look pleasing to have these straight walls in the landscape and they're also not that safe so yeah i would just encourage um, everyone if you haven't checked it out yet water stories such a great place and at least for me it really tipped me over to turning this into a full-time career yeah for sure i got a lot of confidence too of going out and trying some of these things partly for the support that the whole community along with that course gives and the ideas and of course the the engineering that helps you with your confidence to make sure that what you're putting in is safe it's going to last long and from there you just expand on your learnings and your experience and, and get better over time and like i said at the beginning too all of this is going to be backed up with photos and videos on our social media accounts there's permanent and regenerative skills on instagram and of course the discord server will be putting these and the show notes on the website i'll be sure to have a small album of, of pictures from the site in different stages of where we worked as well and so if you don't follow us there definitely uh, subscribe and we will be posting a lot more of these as we do different work i'm actually flying back tomorrow and so is nick to our own places so you can see progress photos of how we are integrating a lot of these learnings and this experience onto our own little properties and yeah join in the conversation because all of us can learn from each other build on our skills and our experience through the collective knowledge that's being shared on these channels that we mentioned and yeah now before we wrap this up just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources design and coaching services in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.